I have discovered the the peak level of awkwardness that I'm capable of reaching because I was at a bar and there was a woman who like has mentioned her kid who's the same age as as Ruby and Tess and I have been trying to meet more family friends mm-hmm. but just trying to like ask somebody for their number in a bar and express that because families is <laughs> just the most awkward feeling so you asked this woman for her phone number yeah <laughs> okay were you able to get the context across yeah i think so i mean she she gave it to me so i'm assuming so because <laughs> yeah why else would she yeah five 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 yeah it's right <laughs> yeah sure it's five 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 one two one two actual uh that it's an actual number yet but uh <laughs> So you want to know how to have a fun day, though? I mean, every day I ask myself that. So step one is to live in a market where Comcast has monopoly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I mean, okay. I'm not there, but okay. I know, I know. Step two is to set up metering on your modem. Okay. Step three is to confirm that that is dramatically different than what Comcast says you're using. Right. And then step four is to try and get somebody at Comcast to answer the question of, so... I'm trying to to account for this difference, and the difference is more than two x. So packet loss doesn't even they you know won't even come into it. But they also never specify anywhere in their terms of service what a terabyte means and how it is being measured, and specifically whether or not packet loss or dropped packets are counted against your data mm-hmm. limit, even though like those can just happen in their data centers. Mm-hmm. And it's mostly it was just it was mostly a lot of explaining enough of TCP and like network infrastructure to the various people to convince them that no I'm not trying to a- I'm not just bad at asking you whether Skype counts or not you need to escalate <laughs> me please right this is related to the I think the conversation we had I think it was I think it made the episode the last one we just recorded and yeah, it wasn't that was when talk. I that was when I got my final warning like we're going to start billing you now um, and I'm just like okay so first of all your numbers are not what I'm measuring so I want to know what a why they're different and b like what should I expect the numbers to be because if packet loss is if is counted against me that's going to I mean up to 5% packet loss is is not abnormal just from normal congestion control that's 50 gigabytes. That is a, a significant difference in what I am paying them for versus not. And then also, like, I want to know, is there any third-party evaluation that's been done, certification? Like, is there anything that they've done to give me any reason that I should believe that they are accurately measuring yeah. my usage? You know, you go to the gas station, and the gas pumps all have a little thing on them that says, like, they were last inspected by the Bureau of whatever and whatever. Yeah. And this, this like, you'd think this would be a thing that the FCC would do, you know, I would assume that, I mean, if it's not the FCC, I'm sure there's somebody who can certify this, but that's just one of those. So you want me to give you more money because you say I'm using this much. Right. I Prove have it. my own numbers that say something very differently, like... This has always been my, my problem with metering internet usage is that, so like, you know, people would always say like, well, it's just like, you know, anything else in your life, the water that you use in your house, like... Except it's not. But... And also, like, you can turn, when you turn the faucet on, you see the water that you're using. Yes. Right? And you're in control of the water that you're using. And the meter is something that is on your property that is inspected by the government. (laughs) Right. And also, like, regardless of the meter, if you get a bill and it's higher than you think, your first instinct is not, like, these liars, this is not what I used. Your first instinct is, like, I probably have a leak somewhere. Right? Right. Like, like the problem is on my end because it's such a trusted system. But with bandwidth 
you don't know how much you're using. It's hard for anybody who doesn't know the internet to know, like, I don't know, how many megabytes is a web page? How many kilobytes is what it should be, to, but so it's to not their what question, it is. <laughs> they, they are trying to do, like, they, they built a site that's like, here's how many hours of, how much data you can expect to use for this many hours of doing a thing. And that's like a useful, because I agree with you and I'm and like good on them for putting that out there because that is a thing that if you're going to meter, you, you, you kind of need to do. Right. Except you also need to get the meter in a right, in a consistent way. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's literally like, I mean, it should be measured as, actually, you know, you know, it's funny. I just, I just realized I spent all this time asking them, you know, is packet loss taken into account or not? And I just realized, I don't know if the meter on my modem includes packets that were sent but not received <laughs> sent but but i never got an act back for it right. i guess that's the only that's the only time and i don't up, i don't upload very much so it, it doesn't really matter but you know i'm i am very curious for the packet that i got how many how many uh packets worth of data was i was i billed for and how has it gone is it just are you still like waiting on them to get back to some higher level tech to get back to you yeah i spent like an hour and a half on the phone with them and after getting escalated through four levels of support i eventually got escalated to their senior network engineering team and they are going to get back to me in 72 hours and i'm also requesting like a third party to verify that there is some reasonable margin of error between what when a device is installed on my because actually the last dude i talked to made a, a good point. He, you know, was with me like, this isn't the thing that's happening, but we are going to have to make sure. Because since I'm metering at my modem level, like it doesn't matter if my computer has a botnet on it. Right. Because I would I would see that traffic because it's going through the, the modem. But if my modem is compromised, mm -hmm. that's the only way that, that my numbers would be off. And if you were to write uh, something that compromises a modem and sends, you know, a ton of traffic, making that traffic not show up on the metering is probably a thing that you would do. So this is reminding me of a recent episode, and I'm sure there are listeners to this podcast who will hear this and say, like, this reminds me of a recent episode of the Reply All podcast that I listened to, which is a fantastic podcast and people should subscribe to it. But basically, they have a segment where people write in with tech support problems and they try and solve them. And so somebody wrote in with this problem they had where they kept getting DMCA notices for having illegally downloaded an episode of Girls, the show on HBO. And it was like the same episode multiple times or like just weird stuff like that. And the person whose Comcast account was like, who, who it was, is like, I've seen this show like once. I certainly didn't download it. I don't know what BitTorrent is. Like, right. I have no idea what's going on here. And so they try. Well, they must know what it is if they know to mention that they don't know what it is. No, well, I think they had a conversation about it. But anyway, so they, so originally they thought maybe it was the fact that like, if you use Comcast's modem, a lot of people don't know this, but I believe by default, in the default configuration. Oh, that sets up the wireless network. It sets up the Comcast Xfinity Wi-Fi network. Yeah. But supposedly that is separate from if they use the Xfinity Wi-Fi network, it wouldn't be attributed to your account if you were, right. if you got this. Which I'm actually very curious how they are going well, about tra tracking that. And like, here I'm, it comes, I'm ready? Okay. So what they found out was that at one point, the woman whose account it was had set up a sub account for somebody to be able because like Comcast does all these things that you can log like you can log into places with your cable account and get like access right. to television or or that's how you log on to Xfinity Wi-Fi, you know, wireless access points. And so this person had created a sub account and the person who they gave that sub account to 
did like that television show and was using BitTorrent to download it. So I wonder if somebody oh, so it didn't out there... didn't even have anything to do with the Xfinity Wi-Fi. Right. It, they weren't using... It did have something to do... They were using their Comcast sub-account on some Xfinity Wi-Fi or maybe... But not the one, at, own... not the one at their house, right. is my point. I right. Because when you said, mentioned that, I was wondering if it was going to turn out to be like just the neighbor was no. using their wi- Wi-Fi. No, it was just that this person who they'd given access to the account. I believe that's how it uh. turned out anyway. So maybe try uh, rotating your Comcast password and making sure you don't have a sub-account. That's my, yeah. that's what I've learned from from there because so that's how they end up attributing that is like so if they get if Xfinity Wi-Fi gets a DMCA takedown notice they know that like oh the user that was logged in was you know Sean Griffin let's send the DMCA violation I guess notice to Sean even though it was through a modem three cities away right well because I mean Comcast is the one who sends that so they would have yep. that information yep so maybe it's something like that who knows <laughs> maybe I mean I don't I don't have any Comcast hardware in my house. Right, but you so, do have a Comcast account, is what I'm saying. So maybe somebody has compromised your Comcast account. Actually, no, they can't have because I, I set up a login for that today for the first time. Mm, okay, well, never mind then. So yeah. there's my plug for the Reply All podcast. You should check it out. <laughs> it's not programming related at all, but it is internet culture related, and people will enjoy it if you're not already listening to it. Anyway, this whole story is just going to end with my, my internet bill is now going up by $50, but I kind of figure, hey, I just want an answer to this. And I've been looking through. There is nowhere in any service agreement that mm-hmm. that they have a data limit. Mm-hmm. Like there's the thing that says they have the right to modify the service, the you know the terms of my service, which is fine. But th- you you still you still need to put that in the the service agreement. And I would imagine if they did, they would you know specif- they would need to specify what a terabyte is and how it is being measured because it's a legal document. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I know I know it's just going to end with my bill going up by $50 because I have no other recourse, but I am going to try and at least get some, you know, third-party verification that they're just bullshitting me and waste some of their time and your own. while I'm at it to make them, <laughs> yeah, but... To make this giant faceless corporation what? <laughs> to make me feel better. <laughs> there you <mostly>. go. <laughs> And I'm nice to the support people, for the record, for anybody who's just yeah. like, you're just making some support people's lives harder. I'm consuming their time, but I'm not being mean to them. Right. They're or, being paid for their time. It's okay. Yeah. I'm not yelling at people. If the people that I hear from, because it sounds like I'm just going to actually be contacted by like some of the actual engineers who do work on this, they I, I might yell at them a little bit. <laughs> Don't yell at anybody. That's not nice. Neither is this whole situation that they've put me in. So... <laughs> It was, it was really funny this morning. I couldn't even get through to a person because I think a line must have gotten taken down. I, I checked my backyard. My internet dropped and I checked my router and it had zero signal. It wasn't it wasn't like out of spec. It was literally zero on any channel, which means that like it is physically not connected to the, the line. The wire from my house was not cut. So and I didn't see anything, but there must have been a pole that got taken down or something. But if there's an outage going on in your neighborhood and you try and, and that just reminded me, oh, yeah, I wanted to call and get some answers about this. And if you try and call while there's an outage, it will not let you through to a person. Oh, really? It's just like, there's an outage in your area. We expect this outage to be resolved at X o'clock. An agent will not be able to help you resolve this issue. Yeah. Goodbye. I mean, I guess that's fine. Unless you were yeah, also calling for calling right, the outage. You were calling about a billing issue, <laughs> basically. Well, that's what, yeah, and so that's what I did. I'm like, you know what? Sure, this is technically a billing issue. And so then billing sent me to technical support, and technical support sent me to account security. Account security sent me to account security tier two, who sent me to, there's an actual specific department for metering, who then escalated me to tier two of that, who has now escalated me to their senior engineering team. <laughs> So maybe you'll end up with a new job. Who knows? (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's a thing that I would ever do. You know, it's funny that we mentioned having some sort of like inspection and government regulation on the metering of things, given the link that I sent you earlier today that I wanted to talk about. I don't even that, that's also a thing that made me think about this, too. I don't even think it has to be a government agency, mm -hmm. but it should definitely be some third party who is not them. And it might make business sense for them to do it just on the sense of like, here, this is a, you know, we have this third party, whatever. And granted, they pay, they at that point would be paying the third party to do it. So it's not right, entirely I mean, independent, but at least, you know, if they well, were I mean, like, it's managed by PricewaterhouseCoopers. Company too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So the article I had sent to you was from last month, or I guess now it's April, so two months ago, but it's called Designs Lost Generation. And when I saw it, it was one of those things that I was like, oh, I don't know. It's it's by Mike Montero, who I know writes some interesting stuff and has said interesting stuff in the past. So I kind of filed it away as like something I want to read someday. And I was on the train not too long ago reading it. And even though it's called Designs Lost Generation, I think it has a lot of applicability to developers as well, really anybody in the software industry. The conceit of the piece basically he starts off by saying like he had kind of mused that there should be a license like that the, the work they were doing is complicated that there should be a license you should have to get licensed in order to do it and everybody was like oh, we don't want that right right and like i get that original like recoiling but also like he follows that up with like kind of the conversation we just have like of course like they should they should be you should have like you know, the gas station thing should be inspected to make sure that they are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And like, yep. he goes a step further into professional things like saying like, how many of you would go to an unlicensed doctor? And like, nobody would go to an unlicensed doctor. How many of you would go to an unaccredited college? You know, other examples are like, how many of you would get a haircut at somebody who doesn't have a license, like some unknowingly unlicensed haircut place or... I mean, I actually literally do that. Yeah, sure. I guess a lot of people do that, but that's just your hair. Uh <laughs> I mean, that, that's literally like a thing is a place that is, has either people who are in the process of going to school or just who haven't gone to school it's like mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not a license in that case it's like a it's just a degree I don't know I think it's a license anyway okay whatever it is yeah they're, they're cheaper because they don't have that or like yeah. the example that I'm dealing with a lot now is when you buy a house and you're looking to get something done at your house on your house like the very first thing that people tell you to ask of the contractors that you're working with is are you licensed and insured right right and so now you're asking people to spend a comparable amount of money or more likely more Right. For development services for like if you want an app written, you're going to spend more than you're going to spend on remodeling your kitchen, probably. Right. Yes. And you're expecting them to do that off of trusting you from two conversations. <laughs> so I have mixed feelings here. Like, I think there's two very different things. I'm very much in favor of like there being some for both designers and developers, some form of licensing mm -hmm. and, you know, specifically things that involve like ethics classes as required parts of that. However, I, I don't want to live in a world where then that's like the, you know, to do any software, it is required that you have this license because I know myself included so many people who got into this industry who would not have at the time been able to afford, you know, some sort of licensing, but they got into software as like, um, you know, a way out of their situation mm -hmm. and, you know, learned on their own and is the sort of thing where a, a mandatory licensing for, you know, industry-wide would absolutely remove the ability, you know, the ability for, for anybody in that, in that kind of situation to, to enter software. Yeah, I can see that. And it's not, it's not a situation where like, I don't know, if you're building a building, <laughs> you probably want a licensed structural engineer. Right. And like, I, I, definitely certain <laughs> jobs should require right. licensed or uh, development. It could be another dimension by which to like categorize your need, right? It's like, well, right. do you want to trust people who are not licensed and maybe just as every bit as good as the people who are licensed or maybe not? 
Or would you like to have the weight of a license behind whomever you hire? It doesn't have to be a requirement, right? Right. Or, you know, like if it were a sort of culture where companies often, if you're unlicensed and they're hire and, and they want to hire you for a senior developer position, they pay to get you licensed. Assuming that the license isn't like a four-year thing. It's a you take an ethics class and a test. Right. Who know? I don't know what it would be. And like in in the article, he he cites the most common objection is like who decide who gets licensed, right? And it's he doesn't answer that question. His question is more like I don't know. Other industries have figured it out. I'm pretty sure we're smart and we can figure it out too. Yeah. Right. And that's a that's a pretty good answer. The answer is though the government probably, which is unfortunate because you know you know what I don't want the government uh, touching because they don't <laughs> understand it at all. Anything tech related? <laughs> yeah. Like. Definitely needs to be people who know how to check their email, right? which is fewer senators than you would expect. <laughs> you know, the article kind of goes on like why. So it's not just an article about licensing, obviously, but he also talks about like why that might be useful in today's context. And the reason why he calls like this, the lost designs, lost generation is basically that the people doing design in his view, the people doing design today we're more concerned with like startup culture and making money and doing things like that, where what he's seeing in the crop of people coming up now is that they're more interested in things like sustainability and ethics and working in like civically engaging companies and things like that. And that's the kind of thing that like you've mentioned as being a potential requirement for getting a software license is like taking classes in ethics and things like that. The kind of thing that a licensing thing might educate people in. But there's also this flip side of like, yes, you will get educated and you will have all this background. So now if somebody comes to you and they tell you they want you to do this thing, which is like, oh, we're going to end up doing really unethical stuff with PII, right? Private, mm -hmm. privately, publicly, I don't know, personally identifiable information, I guess is what it's called. Mm -hmm. I'm going to really do this unethical thing that I don't like, right? So right now your choice is I can say no and put up a fight and either I'll lose that fight and I'll lose my job. Or I can go against my morals if I lose my my ethics if I lose my job. Right. Or, you know, maybe I'll win, but like I'm going to reduce my capital here by putting up this stink. So the flip side of having that license to fall back on is licenses are backed up by organizations. Right? Well, and, and, so, and that's the thing I was about to say, because I mean, then that only has weight if it's if it comes with unionizing. I mean, not it doesn't. I guess maybe, maybe I haven't thought about it that much. But like in the article, he cites the example of the AARP. Like nobody, f he says nobody f with the AARP. Sorry, Tom. And that's true, right? The AARP is not a union, and it's not a government organization. It is just an organization of people that are highly organized and motivated in order to advocate for retired people. Right. Right. They're right. They're Nobody your screws license with for them. retirement. <laughs> they are your license for retirement. You are officially licensed to be retired when you join the AARP. And nobody messes with them because you one phone call to the AARP and they'll be breathing down your neck. And so if you had the similar, like, I don't know, like, I don't, I have actually been following a lot of this Cambridge Analytica stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've been following it very closely, yeah, but I like, have. you didn't listen to me go on the radio, did you? No, I didn't. I, you said, I said, saw that you were going to be on the radio and I was like, what for? And I saw you reply, like just general tech stuff, but I saw it all after you'd already been on the radio. Is that what you talked to? Is that what you talked about? Among other things. Yeah. Uh, the majority of it was around autonomous cars, the... Mm -hmm reality behind them and and the ethics behind them actually and then and then that led into talking about the facebook thing right and explaining what it was okay so you want to give us a high level explainer on what happened here sure i mean so basically this kind of all originates before i believe before they had robust permissions model i don't remember if it was that they just didn't have permissions yet or if it was that they violated them but basically what was a quiz app, like a personality quiz app, was actually collecting all sorts of information about you and also everybody you were friends with. They were not supposed to have 
access this information. Eventually, Facebook noticed that they had gotten all this information they weren't supposed to and immediately terminated their, I guess actually they didn't terminate it at that point, but they demanded that they destroy the data and provide them with certification that the data had been destroyed, which they did. And then Facebook later received over the course of, I think, eight years, several tips that there is evidence that they have not destroyed the data that they said that they had destroyed, which had gone ignored until eventually, you know, that came out, at which point then they finally terminated their developer account and (laughs) API access. But basically, they got way more than they were supposed to. And this was a analytics company that is specifically involved in U.S. politics, and they're not U.S. based. So in the current climate of things, that also adds an entirely additional uh, level of gravity to the whole thing. And so like, I don't know, like in those eight years, if there was some engineer in there that like really felt like, I'm sure there probably were engineers that became, or maybe not engineers, employees or something that became aware of this happening and felt like it wasn't right. But what recourse did they have, right? And the recourse is like, it's really easy for me to sit here and say, well, you should quit your job, right? Or you should make a stink. And if you happen to get fired for your job for that, then that, that should be okay. It's easy for me to say that because I'm not in the situation. It's easy for me to say that because working at Facebook wasn't my dream job. It's easy for me to say that because I'm financially secure and feel like I can probably find another job pretty quickly, although anybody working at Facebook probably can as well. But Well, and, and this one's, I think, kind of interesting, too, because I think there's a lack of oversight at companies that get to the scale as well. Because, I mean, even if they had the freedom to do whatever, like what actual action could they take, right? I mean, really the only thing... For them to have done was make sure that a public statement was made informing users of the breach and making sure they had rectified it, which I mean they had because they had permissions eventually, right? But to me, the big problem is that went this long without any statement to users that their that their data had had been compromised. Right, and that's the kind of thing that I feel like must have been talked about internally. Like somebody must have heard about this and been like, "Well, we have to tell users," and somebody else must have been like, "No," right? That well, has like, been a con- I've, I've, I refuse to believe that over eight years nobody brought up the fact that like should we tell people that their information has been leaked in this way, as particularly as other leaks of similar magnitude are being disclosed every day. Right. No, and I'm sure the, the other side of that, too. You got to imagine exactly how that went. Well, they sent us a certification. They destroyed the data. Like, like <laughs> what does that even mean? Right. And like the more specific example that I think is, is more illuminating in the article, Mike goes into detail about the Bobby Duncan case from a few years ago, where she was basically outed because she joined this group called the Queer Chorus at UT Austin. The fact that even though she had gone through great pains to basically make all of her activity as private as possible, Facebook had decided that it was more useful to them to surface the fact that they had joined this group. And so people in her life became aware of that. And unfortunately, the story does not end well. (laughs) And so later, Mike's going, I feel like I'm just recapping this article, but it's really great. So Mike later goes into Facebook and tells this story at Facebook. And somebody in the audience yells out, it was the chorus director's fault not ours, right? Because he didn't have the group's permission set properly. And it's like, how I don't understand how you can possibly look at this story and come away with that. Yeah, and not, and not, it's Facebook's fault for not making it clear what is or isn't going to get broadcast to the entire world. Right. Like my favorite quote that I, that I highlighted in the article was, the first part of doing this job right is wanting to do it right. And the lost generation of designers, and you might as well say developers, doesn't want to do it right. They found themselves standing before a gate, and rather than seeing themselves as gatekeepers, they decided they were the bellhops. We failed because we looked at our paychecks, saw Mark, Mark Zuckerberg's signature, and forgot the person we actually worked for was Bobby Duncan, which I think is pretty interesting, right? <laughs> it's it's an insightful quote, I think. One thing that I didn't see addressed is also, though, you know, 
So this was talking about designers, and I would say absolutely everything about it extends to developers, perhaps even more so, because you know when there are major breaches, that is often due to developers. Except a lot of these sorts of decisions also aren't made by designers; they're made by marketing. Sure. I mean, he does get into that, I think, and that and that's like that all of this would have to have a backbone, and that backbone is the certification, right? It is the like, I have this organization. It's the certifying organization, basically. I have this sure. organization behind me and I'm empowered to do these things. And I feel I feel that way somewhat like in a much smaller case when I work for ThoughtBot, right? I feel like much like you might, if you hired an, an engineer with this certification, you would expect them to behave in a certain way. Working for ThoughtBot, I feel like I'm empowered to behave in a way that like, in which I'm always advocating for things like quality and testing and things like that because people know that's what they bought or should know that that's what they bought when they decided to work with ThoughtBot. And so that gives me some good ground to stand on in that sense, but having an overarching organization. And I know, and I, you know, I'm lucky to work in a place where I know that if I had an ethical problem with something and took a stance like that, and it resulted in us losing a client that I wouldn't, I don't think it would adversely impact my standing here, but uh, you know, anyway. <laughs> but I do think, so, so let me, let me give, there's actually a very specific example why I think like, cause it's interesting. I don't know that I feel that marketing should also require, you know, this sort of license, but like there's been some discussion around the Tesla crash that occurred in California where the car drove into a divider and the driver was killed. And Tesla released a statement saying that they've confirmed autopilot was engaged and that the driver didn't have his hands on the wheel for a, a longer period than than there would have been clear view of the uh, divider. Mm -hmm. And some people have been saying, well, this is just to show you, like people need to think more carefully about the impact of marketing decisions because some people are saying the only reason he would have felt comfortable taking his hands off the wheel is because it was called autopilot and not some other term. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of decision, right, that marketing get, would make. Uh, there's not really a place where a designer or developer really is able to make a stand on it. No, absolutely not. So other than, I guess, maybe never showing that term in you in the UI, but <laughs> right. But like if somebody felt like that was going to be a problem, they could build it so that like you must have your hands on the wheel for a long enough. But like, you know, it's not going to keep going if your hands are not in the wheel for a period of however long or. Well, that's exactly what it does. And okay. just that period of time is longer than six seconds. They say that it goes through like three phases. First, it gives you visual warnings, and then it gives you audible warnings, and then it plays the you're about to crash into something sound and <laughs> disengages autopilot. And I guess it was at the audible warning stage. Yeah, and like none of this is to say that all of these things would be avoidable at all. Like there's going to be bugs. We're going no, to have and that's, privacy No, and that's breaches. the other thing is that, yeah, the rate of, I mean, as long as the rate of crashes remains lower than the rate of crashes by cars that don't have this, as much as it sucks, like, yeah, it, there are going to be bugs and kinks that get worked out. People are going to die. Even even when it, it's the only way people are driving, people are still going to die because autonomous cars are never going to be perfect. Right. The goal is but for the them bar to be isn't better. Perfect. It's right. better than people. And and at least the, the statistics on number of crashes per year per thousand vehicles shows pretty heavily that, you know, it does make a, it, an impact. Right. And it's unfortunate that there was this bug, but that's the I mean, that's the price we pay. Yeah, and that's but I don't want to stop it. That's the price we pay, right? I want to stop no, it. Like, right. That's the and price we like, pay. What lesson can we learn from this? Is there a change we can make? How do we, you know, like <laughs> that's not to say like, oh, well, you got to scramble a few eggs, right? And like <laughs> be done with it. No, but it's just, I, you know, I don't, I, I honestly don't even know. Like if I were in that retro, I don't know that I would have an answer on like what could we do differently because they, they, their system already has more like making sure that you're keeping your hands on the wheel and paying attention features than any other uh, systems like that out there. And so certainly I don't think that 
increasing the frequency of that is going to be terribly helpful. And it's like, well, we should have just not had that bug. But like, <laughs> that's not a useful thing to have come out of a retro. No, it's not. So I don't know if, you know, I, I don't think that in that case, having a certifying organization and having these certified engineers would have helped because like, these are probably some of the better engineers working on this, right? And yeah. you know, there are, there are bugs, but as long well, as and if you if you look at the video, actually, um, some people have done videos of like driving that area, and it's actually more of not even like you know some piece of it wasn't really working properly. The lines are super faded around there, right. and it looked like and it looks like a fork in the road, and the, and like the thing leading up to the divider just looks like the lane that's being forked. Mm -hmm. So it's like it's all to a certain extent. It's also it's almost just like. I, I mean, it's uh, it, it's so weird to not like, you know, to me, a bug is we have implemented this thing and it's not working correctly. If it just randomly, you know, if the line was there and, and it's very clear that like it just should have been able to recognize it with the capabilities it, it, it's meant to have right now. And it just randomly veers into the side of the highway like that's obviously a bug. Whereas this kind of seems more like just an unimplemented feature <laughs> or an edge case that it you know just doesn't know how to handle yet. If the feature is supposed to be that it can drive for you, then it's a bug <laughs> because well, it, but it's it not. Can't. It's that it, it's that <laughs> it can keep within the lane on the highway. Yeah. In situations where the lane markings are clearly marked. Right. Like that's the actual definite, they, they, they tell you, you right. get a big warning. This is in beta. There will be bugs. This right. is specifically the environment it's meant to be, be used in. Mm -hmm. And you need to make sure that, that you pay attention to the road at all times. And you have to, you have to go through the, that big warning before it lets you uh, turn it on. Yeah. And then even then, every time you turn it on, it says, please keep your hands on the wheel. Right. And it is, it's easy for us to say like, well, yeah, these things happen and you know, it's in the name of progress and like in this particular case, the person who died was the person who made the decision to uh, heed those warnings and then, or read, presumably see those warnings and proceed. But, you know, what if it had hit a kid on the side of the road? Right. Right. Or something like that. And it had, it didn't. So I don't want to like go down this big, like, I think it, it, it is dangerous in a lot of situations to be like, well, what if X had happened? Well, did X happen? It didn't happen. But those are the kinds of things that, change the calculus on some of this stuff i think so i don't think it's worth spending a ton of time thinking about like well how would we have handled it if this had happened if it didn't actually happen but um well and i think the answer i mean until it's at the point where they where it is advertised as a thing where you don't need to keep your eyes on the road at all times and be ready to take over at any moment mm -hmm. once it's advertised as something that isn't that it's a different discussion but until that happens like the driver is at fault. And that's like, now we're veering a little off, <laughs> veering off course here. Of course, I just used that term. <laughs> that's awful. Um, <laughs> but like, <laughs> I didn't even mean to do that. But like, you know, when, when self-driving cars were like first in the news, like that, yeah, this is a thing that we're going to be doing like real soon. Like we have people investigating this. We're doing this in limited tests. I remember, I think it was Mercedes because there was a lot of questions at the time. Like, what does a self-driving car do? Does it prioritize the life of the person driving it? Right. Or does it prioritize the greatest number of lives that it can save. It's the old like pulling a switch and letting a train run over a, you know, right, sure. you know, that whole thing. And I think at the time Mercedes came out and they're like, well, absolutely. The answer is very simple. It prioritizes the life of the person inside the car because they're the person who they're the customer and they're the person who bought the thing. And it's like, <laughs> well, I think there's an even simpler answer. It prioritizes the life of the person inside the car because there's absolutely no way in software we're going to be able to accurately in a split second determine what action is, you know, how many people are likely to die from each possible action. I think it's reasonable to someday assume that all of the cars that are driving on the road and they're driving themselves know how many people are in each car and 
can make a decision between serving left or right, right? That's fair. I mean, yeah, assume, well, assuming that network latencies are low enough and sure. <laughs> that, you know, every car company has agreed to communicate this information in real time. Sure. I, I'm still a little bit of a skeptic. I don't think that even the majority of traffic on all roads will be self-driving in my lifetime, but who knows? Maybe I'm, I hope to be wrong, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see if it, we'll see if it gets there. I mean, the one thing that I, I kind of point out, you know, the big difference between level four and level five autonomy is whether it works just in some limited circumstances or whether it can work literally anywhere. So like you tell it, I want to go to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and it drives you there, assuming there's, you know, a way for a car. Like if you could have done gotten there by off-roading, it'll get you there. Or big, or more, <laughs> more importantly, if it's uh, the bigger one is just if there are like poorly marked unpaved roads along the way that many cases aren't even on maps. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. And I don't know that if we will ever get to like, and it can drive you to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, but we don't need it to. Because like if the, the geofenced area is every major road in the world, that's good enough. Mm -hmm. All right. But well, it also means that we're not going to have cars without steering wheels. <laughs> Unless it's, you know, like a taxi that's literally only meant to. Yeah, you could. I mean, I mean, it you, could, could, you could for those. But if you if a car that you would buy for yourself, like. Well, maybe I'm. I, I would say maybe if if it's good enough for any paved road, right? That's on a map, that's probably right. good enough for a lot of people. And that if yeah. they needed to go somewhere where it wasn't, they like like electric cars are good enough for a lot of people today, right? Even ones sure. with limited range are fine. But maybe having that like, oh, I can also like quickly rent a car when I need to do something different. Right. I can rent one of those steering wheels. <laughs> 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 or maybe the steering wheel is a thing that you take out and you put it in the trunk and you're like, oh, I need my steering wheel. And you get out and you grab your steering wheel and plug it in. <laughs> I mean, electric cars better get good enough for a whole lot more people really soon because <laughs> more and more countries are announcing their plans to outlaw gas cars. Okay. Well, I mean, France is saying 2035. I think 2025, actually, for France. And the UK was 2035. All right. Well, I look forward to it. The, the US is going to be the last country to do that. <laughs> We're going the other if way we currently. We're easing some of the restrictions on miles per gallon currently. I don't want to talk about that. Anyway, I really enjoyed this article, and I encourage people, we'll link to it in the show notes. I encourage people to read it. One other thing that I did want to talk about it in is he talks about how like he feels like designers had kind of let other people define their job rather than them speaking up for themselves and saying like, no, it is actually my job to make sure that the end users, like I advocate for the end users, not for the company, right? Or whatever the case, whatever, whatever thing you believe that designers should be doing. And I think the same can be true of developers as well, where like a lot of developers, when I work with existing teams, I've had the experience several times now where developers will be like, man, how come you get to just work the way that you like, <laughs> like how come you can come in and do all this testing and do all this stuff but I'm just told like this needs to ship as soon as possible. And it's like, well, I didn't ask and I wouldn't do it any other way. Right. Because like I decide, I've said this several times on this podcast, I think it's like, I'm the professional. I'm the one who has to be happy with the work I'm doing and satisfied with what I deliver. And so I decide to do it in the way that I think is the best way possible. And I, I think it's potentially dangerous to advocate that like developers should be empowered across the business. Cause I think that's what a lot of developers want. I think it's important that you recognize that like there are other people who have skills that you can never hope to have in areas that you are not the most skilled at, right? Like some, right. sometimes the business people really do know what they're talking about. And hopefully you work in an organization where like you can have a little bit of that give and take where you're respected as the technical expert and those other people are respected as the business expert, but there is some overlap. And that's the dream, I think. But def certainly, you know, the business people 
most likely, not in all cases, but most likely do not have the expertise to know, is this code tested to the point that we can be reasonably confident works correctly? It's of a quality that, you know, you are reasonably certain that there are not going to end up being bugs that hurt either the company or your users. Right. Right. That is that is a call you have to make. And you should feel empowered to do that without somebody specifically saying that you're empowered to do it, I guess is what right. I'm saying. No, and I agree, because they couldn't tell you whether that, whether it's at that point or not. Right. And that goes for whether or not you have a license, which does not exist, <laughs> or you don't. Like, I think you can do that today. Yeah. I'm very much with you. Like, I think I've, we've talked about this before, right? But the origin of the term software engineer was to get people to take their job more seriously and the ramifications of what they do more seriously. Mm-hmm. And I would definitely be all for the existence of a license that was respected within the industry and again not a mandatory thing that everybody who ever works in software has to get but a thing that does have actual meaning and involves things like ethics classes and i don't know probably security training mm-hmm. sure that oh that reminds me of this thing i saw so we use one password for teams at thoughtbot and i use it mm-hmm. for, i've used it personally for many years behind, before that and i saw a thing in their twitter account come by where they announced this like one password for business thing uh, and this is not a one password ad, but basically it was for like larger businesses than like ThoughtBot would be like a really large enterprise kind of thing. And one of the really cool things I thought that they were doing with that product is they're also anybody who is who has a one password for business account gets a one password like for families account as well. <laughs> the thinking being that like it's a lot easier to convince people to have good like security hygiene when it doesn't just start at work, right? Right. When they do it throughout their life. And I thought that was really interesting. Anyway, now that you mentioned security classes and things like that. Yeah. So here's one other question, though, because I'm also, I think that there should be more oversight on software companies that respect the amount of potential impact that they can have on their users' lives if things are mishandled, similar to the amount of oversight seen, right, not just on doctors, but on hospitals or not just engineers, but also like architecture firms. Mm-hmm. or automotive companies, anything where you can put people's lives at risk. Like if you're doing certain things, you have to meet certain standards and prove that you are in fact taking the right steps. And I do think there should be something like that for software companies. Although then the question becomes, what is the thing that you have to be doing mm-hmm. to have to start getting certified? And to whom are you accountable? And all that I mean, that stuff. one has to be the government pretty much. <laughs> mm-hmm. But... Or the certifying, so, like you could lose your certification, right? So if it's not the right. government, and then we're gonna we're gonna have this whole PCI compliance, right? I was gonna say thing. we have we have that whole thing. We have PCI compliance, we have HIPAA compliance, we have Sarbanes Oxley compliance. We have all of these things that leak into the software world quite frequently. And we're gonna have the what's the European one? GDPR, the new thing that's coming out, the General Data Protection oh, Regulations yeah, or something like that. that. That one came up recently because. Uh, like crates.io is potentially going to be in violation of it. Yeah, I think a lot. I think anything that has Google Analytics right. and isn't sufficiently, you know, warning people mm-hmm. is going to be in violation. Yeah, and that's the kind of thing where like <laughs> this is going to be a thing, and either nobody will pay attention or there will be some meat behind it, which it sounds like there's going to be some some weight behind this. And so there's going to be a small group of people who probably make a good deal of money by like really understanding this. And knowing what it means to businesses and selling them on the fact that like they understand these regulations. I think it's just going to end up with just every website having the new version of we use cookies. Maybe. I don't know. I, haven't, I, I have not read enough into it, but it's the kind of thing where like if there was a certification and the certification had to be renewed every X number of years, part of that certification could be understanding the various regulations that are most likely to impact 
the industry as a whole. And then there could be specializations that are like, oh, you work in medical, you have to understand HIPAA. Right. And we're well, so it's, do that. It, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, though, because I was the point I was about to make, though, was I think one very obvious one is that if you accept passwords, there's there's some additional regulation around there. Just we need to accept as an industry, people are going to reuse the same password on multiple websites. If you have a data breach that leaks their password, you're potentially leaking the password to their bank account. Right. But then, like, is collecting data about your users somewhere that we should draw the line? And then what data should it be? And, and like. That's the one that kind of scares me because, yeah, then it does lead to like you need years to just even be able to understand the regulations around it. And I'm not a fan of things of that complexity simply because users then also aren't necessarily going to understand what is or isn't protected. Right. I did a long stretch of my career working as a developer in a finance organization around about the time Sarbanes-Oxley had come out as like these accounting or these accounting rules. And it leads to things where different people interpret the rules in different ways. <laughs> and so depending on who you go to to consult with, like, what are my requirements here, you get different results, right? <laughs> right. Well, and, and like HIPAA is just saying that if anybody other, you know, if anybody can see your medical information, you have to inform them. I don't know. I and mean, you have to have audit logging and all that stuff. You know, right. you also have to have stuff in place to show that you can know that if something gets violated there that you're able to take corrective action and that you have protections in place. But like theoretically telling users, hey, we're going to show your medical records to just everybody, just all of them <laughs> is technically HIPAA compliant. Yeah. ThoughtBot's general position on that when we talk to clients is like we are not HIPAA experts. Right. We certainly right, have some people who have worked in these environments before, but they should not be considered HIPAA experts either. No, we will do what you tell us is necessary. Right, oh, yeah, right, I guess so. because maybe this is a thing to say, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a HIPAA expert, everything that I just said is not considered legal advice. Yes, This is go. not established <laughs> attorney-private client privilege between us. <laughs> but Sean Griffin said all I had to do was put this in my terms of service. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. This is, uh, of course, you know, everything that we're going to talk about on those sort of subjects is just as developers who have worked with that before our understanding of, like, reading about the law and listening to the lawyers sometimes. I always just find it interesting how varying, especially on HIPAA, right? You have to have your policy of who can see that information. And boy, there's a wildly different set of answers as to what is considered permissible evidence that they have agreed to this policy. You know, is, is, is just checking a checkbox at sign up okay? You know, is emailing them okay? How do you verify that, that they are who they say they are, that it's their email, that they received the email? do you need to do any of those things? You know, like just the, it is funny how many different answers you'll get to that question, depending on any of those questions, depending on who you ask. Yep. And there's a whole industry around it. <laughs> Same with if uh, signing something like without a pen is okay. Mm. I think that's changing now. I think more and it more is, people are but... fine with typing in a box and then having it do a signature for you. <laughs> well, I don't even mean that. I mean like the, you know, preview just has the like, you, you, you know, scan your signature in and stamp yeah, it on and that's there. How yeah. I sign everything. Yeah, I, don't that's how... I don't even have a printer. Yeah. Occasionally though, there will be government forms that are like super, super protected against you being able to do that. Like PDF actually has a thing that makes it so you can't modify it. Uh, I've, I've not run into those yet. If you can print it though, then you can print it to PDF and then modify it. And then, <laughs> Oh, I never thought of that. There you go. Oh, that's what I got. That's what I do from that's now. That's like on. my favorite. I think that was one of my favorite features when I moved to OS Town is like built-in print to PDF from the print dialog. It's like oh, fantastic. I wanted to move on to something. I have feedback on the episode that I did not appear on, 
which was you and Amanda talking about many different things. But one of the things you talked about is the uselessness of the sort from high to low price-wise. Ah, uh, yes. And I just would like to point out, I'd like to take the time to have follow-up on my own show where yeah. uh, I sort high to low in many circumstances. Like, Why? For instance, let's say the circumstance is like a, a circumstance I found myself in somewhat recently. It was like, I've owned a lot of ice cream scoops in my life. I don't particularly think any of them are great. It doesn't seem like buying the world's best ice cream scoop should be that expensive. So I want to buy the world's best ice cream scoop. So you go in and you type ice cream scoop, sort high to low. And you're like, how much does the best ice cream scoop? No, but that doesn't tell that doesn't give you the best ice cream scoop. That gives you the most expensive ice cream scoop. It gives scoop. you a starting point for what might be the best ice cream scoop, right? And go from there. There are times when I'm just like, I'm tired of buying whatever the cheap version. It's usually kitchen stuff for me. I mean, I'm tired of buying whatever the cheap are, version are, of this. Are a, a oh, no, metric no, no, no. no, user reviews are awful. I hate user reviews. Assuming that they're using a reasonable weighting scale. And they never are. I like I actually I prefer the the questions and answers that are that are now on Amazon reviews because I feel like those tell me more oh, about the actual sure. product than I also really like them for the humor value because like you'll see things like there's lots of people who get confused over what that is <laughs> so like the one I sent out a while ago was like somebody somebody asked like it was a, it was on a toy I was considering buying one of my kids or something and the question was like what are its dimensions and the answer was like I'm not sure I brought it from my grandson it's at his house <laughs> <laughs> why did you answer Anyway, I guess they probably think it's mandatory. I guess, <laughs> or like it's posed to that. Like this is a question for you. We are asking you, you and only you, this question. <laughs> no, seriously, can you tell us? Because like we don't know. <laughs> we need to list it on the website, please. It's the new captcha. Anyway, that was my feedback for that episode. Okay. Also, this is episode one hundred and fifty. So congratulations, we made it to one hundred and fifty. Virtual high five. Yes. All right, and. I also wanted to remind people that RailsConf is coming up and that Sean and I and Tom will be there and we'll be doing some recordings. You're going to want to follow us on Twitter if you're interested in those recordings. And we're going to try and do one, at least one that will be open to the public and you can come in and ask some, doing some Q&A. But also... You're not doing all of them open to the public? I don't know. Maybe they'll all be open to the public. I'm not really sure what's I, going on. I don't on. want to do Q&A for all of them, but I, I, no. I, thought, I thought the plan was to have, to have all of them open like last year. Sure. So we'll let you know when we're recording and you can stop by and say hello, listen into the recordings. And then we'll have one where in our typical style where we take some Q&A from an audience, but also on Tuesday night, which is the first, so Tuesday is the first day of the conference where there are talks and things like that. On Tuesday night, we were thinking about meeting up and going to the Bicycle Museum, which is close to the conference center in Pittsburgh around 6.30. So if you follow us on Twitter and look out on the ThoughtBot blog for an upcoming blog post from Tom, where he'll talk about some of the things we're doing at RailsConf. Yeah, so follow us on Twitter so you get a heads up about that. You can come with us and uh, we'll probably go out to dinner or drinks afterwards as well. So be cool to meet as many of you that are going to be there as possible. 17th. Yeah, that conflicts with the Heroku dinner. I'm not okay. going to be able to make it to that. All right. Well, Sean won't be there, but I will be there. But yeah, we're still kind of confirming the finalist of guests. But so far, we are definitely going to have Aaron Patterson, uh, Olivier Lacan, and Vaidehi Joshi. Mm -hmm. Is that the right way to pronounce the name? Vaidehi Joshi. We're going to have Vaidehi Joshi. Uh, and we've got a few others that we're hoping to get. So you should definitely come listen to us talk with them about technology <laughs> and other things that they may be interested Maybe in. Maybe we'll get their opinion on licensure, too. <laughs> yeah, that, that actually could be a fun recurring question. All right, cool. Thanks for listening to 150 episodes of The Bike Shed. <laughs> Woo, we did it! Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 150. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about any of our 150 episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at hosts at bike shed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. 
This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.